Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Working History, now a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. The podcast is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Eileen Boris, the Hall Professor and Distinguished Professor of Feminist Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Today, we're discussing her most recent book, Making the Woman Worker, Precarious Labor and the Fight for Global Labor Standards, 1919 to 2019, published by Oxford University Press. Eileen Boris, welcome to Working History. It's my pleasure. Great. First of all, uh, congratulations on the publication of the book. It's been a decade in the making. Is that right? Well, I did my first research in 2008, Uh and I was involved with the transnational turn in labor history. I was part of a conference at the journal Labor. Mm -hmm. It used to be studies in working class history of the Americas, Mm -hmm. but now it's just studies in working class history, and it has a global reach. Uh, with uh, associate editors from around the world as well. And we were doing a conference on labor in the state and the transnational turn. And I said to myself, what am I going to research? Right. And I remembered I had some material in from the Schlesinger Library from Frieda Miller's papers. And Miller had been the uh, had a, the director of the Women's Bureau mm-hmm. under Truman. Mm-hmm. And it was on the... ILO, the International Labor Organization's revision of its maternity convention in the early 1950s, and it was, and she was arguing that the U.S. should be involved with this. And so I said, that's what I'll look at. I'll look at maternity uh, policies and this revision of this maternity convention and whether the U.S. was an exception or before the blossoming of European welfare states after World War II, was it more like many other states? And I compared it with Latin American states, which happened to always sign most ILO conventions, mm-hmm. while the U.S. doesn't. Let's start with a little bit of background um, before we before we really kind of dive into the to the meat of your work. The book, as you as you just mentioned, looks at how the ILO, the International Labor Organization, has or has not, as the case may be, afforded protections to women workers globally in its hundred year history. So what I'm hoping you could do is just really briefly walk our listeners through the founding of the ILO and explain what its mandate is. Out of World War I, the ILO emerged as a almost labor parliament mm-hmm. that would create uh, standards, rules of the game after the war for the world's workers. But it was also a, it was part of the Treaty of Versailles. Mm-hmm. So the League mm-hmm. of Nations is formed. And at the meetings that are forming the League of Nations, 
the International Labor Organization is born. Mm -hmm. And it's partially because of the role of the trade unions of the Allied powers uh, during the war. And they were demanding something out of it because of the sacrifices of workers. And the French and the British colonial powers really were at the center. But at the founding of the ILO, Samuel Gompers from the U.S. was there, and he wanted it to be as weak as possible, Mm -hmm. that its conventions and its decorations and instruments would not be binding necessarily. Mm -hmm. And at this meeting, at these meetings in which uh, the treaty out of World War I and the various treaties were being deliberated on, the international women's movement at that day sent representatives. And and they were lobbying to include women and to specifically make sure that women had a seat at the table Mm -hmm. at both at these various aspects of the League of Nations and the ILO. And the ILO was unique because on one hand, it's the only tripartite, that is, there are, it is nationally based, so you have nation states, but each one of them sends delegates that are two are from government. One is from representing workers, and it's usually a peak labor organization like the AFL, AFL-CIO today, that determines who's going to become as the labor representative, and then employer associations. Mm-hmm. They, the other aspect that's important to understand about the ILO, its founding was anti-Bolshevism. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was an attempt to tell, by social democrats at the time, in, to tell uh, the world's workers, we're going to make sure that you uh, benefit from the fruits of victory. Um, and it was to level the, tr- the playing field between these capitalist nations, ultimately, who were also colonial powers. Okay, so ultimately you have the ILO then being established. And the ILO's labor conventions, in large part, it seems, from the interjections made by women in the debates, were intended to include all workers regardless of gender. So... Why then do we see women, when we look at the course of the 20th century and then largely into the 21st century as well, largely left out of the protective regime or the labor standards and protection regime that's created through the century after the ILO was founded? So let me just back up for a minute and tell you that at the International Labor Conference, which is one component of the ILO, Mm -hmm. these conventions, which if a country ratifies them, they're they're binding, like Mm -hmm. a treaty. And then recommendations, which usually have more details, but are not binding, and other instruments like decorations are voted on and debated. Labor standards, by definition, are protection for workers. Mm -hmm. But the woman worker was seen as different from the male worker. Mm-hmm. And so some protect some standards are special treatment for women, just as there were there were special treatment for other definitions of dependent people mm-hmm. or people with outside of trade unions, like children mm-hmm. and colonies, quite frankly, which were always given lesser conventions. So the first answer to, yes, women are included unless they're excluded or treated differently, 
is that we have to look at the worldwide sexual division of labor. Mm -hmm. Most of the conventions initially were for industrial workers or workers in extractive industries. Women were not in those jobs. Secondly, so the jobs that women dominated, which were agriculture and domestic work Mm -hmm. for most of the 20th century around the world, there were not labor standards for that or for out workers except for perhaps in the uh, minimum wage fixing standard of 1928 which was really trying to uh, give uh, some minimum wage some some bottom some floor mm-hmm. for the gun industry to the extent that women workers were not in collective bargaining, and the idea was they were undermining male workers' uh, rate for the job. So it's the location of the worker, work. It's the sector. And it's what counts as work, Mm -hmm. because much of women's work, home-based work, domestic work, care work, was not considered really work uh, in this period. Now, but there were these special what we in debates in U.S. history and U.S. women's history are called, usually called protective labor legislation mm-hmm. that just for women, night work, uh, banning women from hazardous substances and maternity protection, for example. And there's very few of them, actually. There were also special maternity protection for women on plantations. Mm-hmm. But that was a non-binding early on uh, in terms of agriculture. So so these special laws for women only, then you have these debates among feminists and with within the activist community. Do they hurt women or are they necessary for women to get equality? And some of these uh, protections are actually not really about the workplace per se, but they're about morality, uh, they're about uh, sexuality, they're about controlling, uh, policing women's behavior. Much of the concern over women out at night is about that. Mm -hmm. Or they're about civilizing uh, women in the global south and men. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more specifically about domestic and household workers and care workers and everyone that is lumped in with that definition of work. Can you, first of all, parse out for us the differences between productive and reproductive labor, number one, and then two, sort of a two-part question here, how and why is there a perception that domestic or household work and workers occupy a kind of gray space between these two? Well, the definition of work was with paid labor, was Mm -hmm. with employment. And to the extent that the ILO conventions, which are aspirational Mm -hmm. by countries are supposed to make sure that their laws, if they sign on to to the conventions, match the uh, different articles of the convention, were based on the white male Western industrial worker, the full-time worker, the unionized worker, and not part-time, the worker in the home, because that wasn't really seen as a workspace. And it also was not seen as as a space of labor 
that could be that was involved in uh, international competition and trade. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the bases to level that playing field between nations. So so the home is not looked at as a workplace. It's looked at as a place of privacy and a family. Mm-hmm. And these kinds of ideologies, these definitional ruses, uh, meant that when the work that is supposed to be for the family or done out of love or kinship obligation becomes a com- commodified, becomes paid, that work isn't also seen as real work. Mm-hmm. So domestic workers and other household workers, particularly domestic workers, had a double strike against them, even though the issue of domestic work went in and out of discussions in the interwar period in the 1930s, and there was some concern it almost got in the ILO's agenda, as I describe in my book and elsewhere, in the in the late 40s and early 50s. But it really wasn't legible. But the two strikes were, one, this notion of the home as a private space mm-hmm. that you cannot regulate, and that if work is taking place there, particularly without workers, well, they're, they're family members, and they're not going to be exploited by other family members. But But secondly, it's not a proper subject for an international intervention because it's local, it's intimate, it is not. Um, now, we know this isn't true because of migrant mm-hmm. uh, workers, but this is the uh, basis in which it's dismissed. It just wasn't legible as work. Mm-hmm. And does this play into muddying up in some ways the sometimes what is very neatly categorized as global north and global south, right? When you think of global north as industrialized, as you know, advanced economies and so forth, and global south as developing or more agricultural, where do domestic and household workers fit into those kinds of definitions of global economy? The third world within, mm-hmm. as colleagues have uh, called it, we have uneven and unequal development, even within the global north. And it's really only in recent decades that we've been able to embrace that idea that we have persistence of not quite free labor. We have pockets of what's called underdevelopment. Uh, Yourself as a Southern historian, of course, really knows that, Mm -hmm. uh, that we have many labor systems competing in the industrialized North. Uh, And just as some countries in the global South, particularly in Latin America, have burgeoning, you know, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, uh, industrial sectors, India uh, have but we do associate one with underdevelopment because of definitions of development. And all my book really is a very much of a conceptual history. So these labor standards are defining, you know, what is a worker? Mm-hmm. What is a woman in, in the process of creating them? And I think the other problem is that this is work that is very racialized or case-based. Uh, it's mostly female domestic work. But there's also men in Africa and in Asia who have done this kind of labor. And it's labor that's also called considered invisible. Mm -hmm. And we don't think of work as invisible in the global north. 
And yet there's so, so much work over time as historians. We realize that the industrial norm was not the only labor system. Right. What historically have been the challenges of organizing domestic and household workers and for recognition of what they do as work in sort of that productive versus reproductive sense of the word and of them as workers? Could you walk us through a little bit of that history of organizing locally and or globally? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not the first historian or the only historian who's discussed this and Tara Hunter and Mm -hmm. Then uh, are written you know, brilliantly on this, as as Phil, the late Phyllis Palmer and and others. Uh, but we can uh, go back and see that there's been forms of resistance from the time there were indentured uh, servants and enslaved people. Andy Urban's work, I think of too, with the Irish so-called Bridget, uh, as well as the Chinese male servant in the 19th century. And there's been forms of the weapons of the weak underground resistance. Mm -hmm. It's one thing. But in terms of formal organizing in, and of course, Tara Hunter has shown that with the Washerwomen in Atlanta, we can, uh, and others are showing it from the early 20th century, um, Vanessa May. So I'm doing all my shout outs now. Uh, <laughs> by the time we get to the 1930s, there is some attempts to organize. Uh, uh, and Dora Jones and the Domestic Workers Local uh, is connected to the building uh, trades, which becomes SEIU, the uh, the. It's not building trains, but it's the, you know, the janitors, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So what becomes SEIU is actually uh, some of this first organizing. But it's very hard to organize scattered workers who are earning very little. And that's why domestic workers organizers then and home care organizers that I've written, Jen Klein and I have written on uh, later on in the, uh, from the 30s to the, uh, to the present, and, and organizers today of uh, domestic workers have turned to the state. Mm-hmm. They have turned to get laws, to standards, and to really what I call a dialectic of strikes and standards or organizing and uh, rules so that to uh, make exploitation less. So and the, the fact is, though, that domestic workers, uh, uh, despite their their desires, were excluded from the Fair Labor Standards Act and other New Deal um, laws. And that was influenced uh, both of the southern uh, wing of the Democratic Party to get uh, these labor standards in the 1930s in the U.S. passed. Uh, but also uh, due to these understandings of the legitimacy of the home. Mm -hmm. And so there's been that struggle throughout in which advocates initially were the ones pushing. But domestic workers were part of civil rights movements. They were central to uh, the southern civil rights and the northern civil rights. And by the late uh, 60s, are organizing in this country, but there are other histories. Liz Hutchinson has written about domestic workers in Chile. Mm -hmm. It shows a very rich uh, history of organization uh, in the 20th century. 
often connected with the Catholic Church and with radical trade unions. But none of these efforts have, they've always have to be continuous because people drop in and out of the occupation and they're difficult to find and employers uh, make it very difficult to regulate the home. I should add that this connection to radical political parties or to the left trade unions that we see in Latin America is very different than in the U.S. So when I was at the first uh, Congress of the International Domestic uh, Workers Federation in 2013 in Uruguay, I was very struck by the ways in which the language of domestic workers from Peru and other Latin American countries who talked about exploitation, who talked about class struggle, who talked about justice in very different terms than the women coming from the U.S., many of them who were Latin American immigrants to begin with, and migrants. And they talked much more about carrying across the generations and about cross-class collaborations. And that really reflects the different strategies, not the different goals Mm -hmm. of uh, domestic workers and domestic worker organizers in different countries. In 2011, a binding international convention, uh, convention number 189, the Domestic Workers Convention, also known as the Decent Work for Domestics Convention, was adopted by the ILO. And I'm wondering if you could, again, walk us through some of the organizing and political steps necessary to get to this point where there is an ILO convention directly referencing and directly protecting, if you will, domestic and, and home workers. Yeah, the this was a long struggle. Yeah. And we can go back to two points. One is the early post-World War II periods when uh, Frieda Miller from the U.S., Florence Hancock uh, from the trade union conference in Britain, and Mildred Fairchild from the U.S. who worked in the ILO as head of their uh, unit on women, who was a, who was a former prof- professor from Brimois, were trying to get with, uh, with some other people from the British delegation in particular, their, uh, one of their worker delegates, uh, uh, Alfred Roberts, get the ILO to discuss domestic work and perhaps have some sort of instrument. It might not be a convention, but to see that it required labor standards in the post-war mm-hmm. period. And the governing body of the ILO does put it as possible subject for action. But then the UN, in the uh, Commission for the Status of Women, but ECOSOC, the Economic and Social Security uh, Council, says to the ILO, we want you to look at equal remuneration, equal pay. Mm -hmm. And that, and and that's a story I've told, I tell in the book and I've told elsewhere, that involves the Cold War and East-West jockeying and many other aspects. Uh, pushes domestic work off of the agenda. Mm -hmm. There is a a specialist meeting about what do we know about domestic work in the early 1950s, but it goes nowhere. Again, in the 1960s, African nations demand the ILO do something about domestic work. 
which was a sector that was uh, important in those countries, mm-hmm. and male workers as well, and that's about 65 or so. And the ILO says, well, we'll do a report. The report finally comes out in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. It's not high priority. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. part of the problem is, well, there's no data. One thing that we real that the ILO serves is collecting information about the world of work. It is neutral, this information, but it's the best that we have. Mm-hmm. That is, there are assumptions behind the work at all times, but it's among the best data we have globally on a whole range of issues. So comes out again, domestic work, yes, the conditions are terrible, but you know, you can't do much about it. Uh, you know, uh, we can't really regulate about it. Uh, and that was the same conclusions in the 1930s when the first study was done by the ILO. Uh, you can fast forward to the organizing on the ground by domestic workers in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Part of this comes out of the movements of migrant workers. And domestic work, which in the global north, people thought was a dying occupation, A, never did die, and B, is reinvigorated in the uh, 1970s and 80s, precisely with the, with the care deficit, the squeeze uh, from, women's la- uh, from white women's labor force participation, white middle-class women, because other women were always in the labor market. And who's going to care, who's going to cook, who's going to clean, and you begin having uh, more and more migrant domestic workers, not only in the U.S., but in places uh, where there always had been domestic workers, like Hong Kong, Singapore. And you, you begin to have movements of migrant workers. They organize. Women in Latin America organize. And you get a... Um, critical mass of activists and organizations by the Beijing conference in the mid-90s. And there, there, even I think somewhat earlier, there's meetings and let's have a network of domestic workers. Finally, in the early 2000s, the European trade unions and NGOs and foundations see these workers on the move and the, and workers come together and they strategize and they determine that having an ILO convention would be an excellent way to bring local and national and regional issues to a global scale and use the convention to bring it back on the ground for local and national and regional struggles. Mm -hmm. The ILO already had an opening, and this is the second historical point, in 1996, Convention 177 on called Homework comes about, which is the first big recognition of the home as a workplace, and this was for outworkers, and that women campaigners from India in Britain and elsewhere, the Netherlands, uh, were involved in pushing that through with the help of staff from the ILO. And the turning point was when the International Trade Union Secretariats came on board 
particularly what now is the International Union of Food Workers. It's food, commercial tobacco, et cetera, et cetera, the, ser- the service industry, really. Mm-hmm. And the IUF has been a uh, tremendous international trade union, and they gave real support to the domestic workers organizing. So having the trade unions, having the feminist NGOs, but having the grassroots worker organizations proved essential, as well as uh, Juan Somalia, who was the director general of the ILO, uh, Manuela Tomney, who was, um, who is connected the head of uh, conditions of work, and who had inside people and outside pressure that brought the domestic workers uh, to the agenda of the ILO. What have the practical outcomes been of uh, Convention 189? And sort of a a sub-question to that, what is necessary to take an ILO convention from something that's aspirational, which you hinted at earlier, to operational? Well, and let me just say, it was very dramatic when the domestic workers had their breakthrough Uh uh, for two reasons. One is they got around the tripartite organization of the ILO, and this is important for the future, actually, uh, because NGOs don't really have a voice mm-hmm. at the ILO. They're observers, and sometimes they can. Sometimes, if they're authorized observers, they can speak at the beginning of the international labor conference. Sometimes they can speak in committees. We go out of Harvard, uh, which is an international uh, organization, uh, women in formal organizing, and et cetera, uh, played a very important role, uh, as well as the IUF. And, but the domestic workers found ways first to get their members, uh, their activists, actual workers, on delegations, on national delegations as advisors, or as delegates, actually, and appointed to the committee. But they also used messaging, signs, demonstrations to be a presence in Geneva. And the ILO had never been uh, lobbied like that before. So they took the tactics of a social movement, Mm -hmm. and this is important for the aftermath as well, and brought it to Geneva. So... Uh, I mean, you know, sitting together in the galleries wearing T-shirts with a message. That was pretty effective, having press conferences every day and commentary, marching in the streets. And they did things like uh, singing and disrupting, and they got chastised for that. But uh, they really broke through the state ILO. And at the very end, when the conventions passed, they left. A banner came down, and now it's on to the ratifications. Mm -hmm. There was a movement 12 by 12. Well, they didn't quite make that, but uh, the the convention now has about 26 signatories. Mm -hmm. The home-based labor convention from 1996 has 11. Many conventions have very few signatories or nations. And by the way, all the employers voted against the home-based labor. Of course. <laughs> and essentially walked out uh, trying to stop it. Their role is to be in the committees to water down and run out the clock these days. 
which is a challenge, I think, for people who adhere to the the historic structure of the ILO, having employers having a seat at the table too, but it's increasingly being governments and the worker delegates, and the worker delegates have been uh, representatives have been more open to the inf- to informal sector and. Uh, workers which are not in the peak labor organizations of the uh, nation states. Well, the IUF and the ILO itself and others help fund then campaigns in states. So you take this convention, and this is what the various domestic worker organizations that, that were at the time the International Domestic Worker Network, which became... Uh, a, a labor federation run by women and dominated by women in 2013. Uh, and they went to countries and had their campaigns. And these campaigns for ILO ratification were useful in, A, organizing workers in their country and trying to change the law. Uruguay was the first country to sign right away. The U.S. hasn't, probably won't. But it was very, very brilliant kinds of ads or information commercials by the National Domestic Worker Alliance here that would say, first New York, mm-hmm. then the ILO, California will be next. So using the fact that there is this international standard on the local level, South Africa, Brazil, Many a uh, number of other Latin American countries, a few of the European countries, Philippines, uh, have signed this convention. There's been 26 countries that have as of now, and it's on the ground. So, indivi- so it's a, an attempt to then improve the laws. So it's been used that way, but also used for organizing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the, it's enforcement of the laws. So you can say, you see, there's. An international convention. You're not alone. What are the takeaways and lessons of this larger story that you tell, this 100-year story really longer than that in some ways, that we can take away or that you that you unpack in some ways in terms of where the global economy is moving? And especially when we think of the gig economy, the precarious labor economy, that's becoming more and more entrenched and normalized. What can what can we learn from this history of making, you know, making the woman worker and precarious labor around homework and care work? I mean, I'm a historian, but this is what I take away Mm -hmm. from the history. In the last chapter of the book, I talk about the the future of work as the ILO is formulating it for its centennial, for its 100th birthday and the way in which care work both unpaid first and then paid, sits at the center, the care work economy, sits sits at the center for the future of work. Because it seems to me at the last analysis, women, the regulation of women's labor under labor standards, it's really about allocating women's work, whether in the home or other workplaces. And so if you make it more difficult because of lack of social support for women to enter employment on decent terms, then you're cutting off a labor supply. 
And so the ILO really gives permission to governments to figure out where they're going to put women's labor. So part of this is to improve uh, child care, to if there is going to be digital work, to make sure it comes out of labor standards, to have flex time and space, etc. Pretty much the work and family agenda that we think of. That's one component of what they're doing. Secondly, is uh, since 189, there's been a second, a new convention that was just passed in June. And that's 190, and it's about gender violence and sexual harassment for men and women in the world of work. So there's an attempt to say that this is discrimination as well as a health and safety issue, mm-hmm. and that the workplace should be safe for all kinds of people. And there was a debate of how specific uh, the convention and the uh, company recommendations should be. LBGTQ people were originally named. And then they didn't name anyone because there were some countries that didn't want LBGTQ people named. But they are included in in that notion of gender violence. And then the third component of what's being done is looking at the global supply chain. Uh, Can you regulate it? And here, two of the rubs that are really challenges for the future of work come about. The first is, can you have national laws, national standards for multinational enterprises. Mm -hmm. This is something, of course, your own work is very much dealt with with the U.S. South, but also in terms of the Caribbean. What does it mean to have that? And that's that's been a challenge, particularly since the 1970s, but even uh, really was beginning to be talked at at the ILO in the post-war period, the early post-war period, in textiles and garments and clothing and shoes, etc. So that's one issue. The other is the ILO attempts to have standards. And in recent decades, it's been trying to formalize the informal sector. It was one of the organizations that named the informal sector in the early 1970s. But can you... formalize the informal sector. And that's where this history becomes important. Mm -hmm. To the extent that the woman worker as a concept and women in the global South as the difference of the woman worker, because that's what the book sort of shows. Um, You have the white Western industrial male worker as the norm, his female counterpart as different, so needs these special regulations. But then women in the global South racial, ethnic, uh, colonial, others, case others, become the difference to the woman worker. And if those jobs are part-time, temporary, low-paid, outside of uh, the employment relationship, the standard employment relationship, there's no employee, real employer or hard to trace. Well, that is the lesson to learn. How do you get decent work under that kind of circumstance. And there, the two main takeaways, I think, you have to look at the whole worker. So the worker within the community, the work, you have to look at social supports, not only workers with for family responsibilities and what that might mean, 
family responsibilities. It's sort of I owe talk for care work historically. Uh, but also you have to say, well, maybe we have to cover own account workers. Maybe labor standards should be all workers. So that's one thing. And the other is realizing that these standards hold employers and governments to account. And to the extent that they can be available as a tool for informal workers and precarious workers to organize through, then as we've seen with the home-based workers historically since um, the 1970s and 80s and the domestic workers, then that offers hope for others in the gig economy. And right now the ILO is re-looking at homework because of digital homework. And I was at a consult in um, July precisely on that issue. They're trying to figure out what are the lessons from the industrial homework history that can be used for digital homework. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. it's a really fantastic transnational book, and it covers a lot of ground, and it also, I think, opens up a lot of questions that lots of new research can grow from. So Eileen Boris, thank you for talking about your book and joining us for this episode of Working History. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Eileen Boris for joining us to discuss her most recent book, Making the Woman Worker, Precarious Labor and the Fight for Global Labor Standards. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast in the New Books Network produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Working History.